Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. I'm Trina Sideros, and I'm a management consultant at PwC working with pharmaceutical companies on vaccines, mRNA, and other drug products. I also lead our Health Research Institute, also known as HRI. And I'm Igor Belokronitsky, a principal who is PwC Strategy End, where I help leading health organizations with their strategies and operating models. And Trina and I are here today with Shaguna Poonj, who's a partner with Strategy End, and Rick Edmonds, who's a senior partner with Strategy End. And they're here today to talk about value-based planning, and we're very excited to have them. So welcome, Shaguna, and welcome, Rick. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, as you're both strategists, strategy is all about making choices. And as the industry changes, both the choices change as well as the ways and approaches for making those choices. And one of the more important ones is value-based planning. So today that's our topic for discussion. It seems that it's been growing in importance and in usefulness as a tool for making choices. And so we're excited to talk to you about it. I think when I think about these kinds of endeavors, and I think a lot of folks think when they think about these kinds of endeavors, they think about these exhaustive, bottoms-up accounting and rating exercises that happen in minute detail. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about a more tiered, efficient approach to getting results. And so I'm really excited to hear what Rick and Shaguna have to say about that, about avoiding those exhaustive accounting exercises that I think people think about. So Trina, maybe with that in mind, let's start with the big picture. Let's talk about the current and future environment and what is it about what's going on today that's pushing pharma and life sciences companies to make tough choices. How big of a deal is this? Rick, what do you think about this? Well, if you step back for a moment and look at pharmaceutical companies and their performance, they've actually been underperforming over the last one, three, five, 10 years in terms of shareholder returns relative to the broader industry. And it is an industry that typically had been an outperformer up until the last decade. So what they are seeing is that their expectations remain high. They have a 30% higher price earnings ratio than the S&P more broadly. They are facing some pretty significant headwinds. If you think about the natural pricing pressures, you think about the increasing competitiveness within the primary therapeutic areas. And amongst all that, they still have to improve performance significantly to even get to much less surpass the S&P 500. And they're doing this coming off of what you would think would have been a good time frame. They had a 33% growth in prescriptions globally over the last decade. And their pipeline assets in terms of new modalities has increased tenfold. So the net of all that together says they have to not only increase their top line, which has always been a high expectation, but also increase their bottom line performance pretty significantly and in a way that they frankly have not been forced to do in the past. And that does translate to bigger winners and losers. The differential between the top quartile performer and pharma and the third quartile, the bottom quartile was 25 points. If you look back a decade, now it's up to 40 points. So this differentiation in the industry and performance in the industry, both top line and bottom line, has gotten to be much more significant. And therefore, it requires companies to be more thoughtful around how they put their resources to the best use. So... Shaguna, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about those choices that are going to have to be made, because it sounds like to me from what Rick just said that business as usual isn't going to cut it anymore and that there's a lot of pressure to take action. 
So can you talk a little bit about some of those trade-offs or those choices that pharmaceutical and life sciences companies are going to have to consider? So yeah, there are a number of what we are increasingly seeing as tough choices that business leaders and executives in pharma and life sciences are having to make. An example would be they're constantly challenged on how to prioritize their portfolio in terms of where they allocate resources. Traditionally, a number of companies, their current portfolios are made up of large blockbuster products that have multiple indications and reach out to a number of patients. But where they're seeing a lot of the future value is being driven by a tale of niche products with much smaller patient populations. So even just thinking on how you reprioritize your dollars, but also your overall resourcing and activity related to your portfolio and where it is in the life cycle is pretty tough, especially in some of these larger, complex pharma and life sciences companies. Another example that's also being led from a market perspective is the shift to newer digital channels. Traditionally, a lot of what marketers have done have been around traditional channels of media and banner ads where they have some comfort in knowing the effectiveness of their channels for their brands. And now there's a shift towards digital channels, which may be more efficient, but the effectiveness is probably less tested. And so really, how much can I bank on that? Where do I shift the resources is tough. Between we've also seen, not just at a business leader perspective, also at the brand level, some of the brand leaders, functional leaders are also constantly challenged around these trade-offs. So One of the examples is pharma has always invested a lot in generating discretionary publications. That's sort of the word of mouth and the scientific data. But how much do you continue to do that for relatively established products? Or how much do we need to reinvent the wheel around content and what content goes to the different audiences for some of the mature and more established assets? Or one of the classic ones is doing different speaker programs and events, which may be limited in their return on investment, but can be seen as more strategic, especially when your competitors and peers are doing it. So there are a number of those choices that the business leaders and brand leads are faced day to day. I think on the point of where these can be a little bit more low-hanging fruits is where there's clear indicators of productivity or ROI. It becomes much harder when you're talking about spend categories that are related to more internal facing functions, which are, of course, much needed to operate in the business like market research or data or even medical affairs, but you can't really tie it back to value. So the stakes seem really high here. These are big bet your career, bet the company types of decisions. And it's not just binary A or B. It's also how fast do we want to move in a particular direction? So for an executive, how do they go about making these decisions, these choices? What methods are they using? Well, it's interesting. Our clients, both the business leader side and the CFOs that we work with are looking for a better way to decide on how they think about resource allocation of their operating expense across the portfolio, across functions, across geographies, not just in terms of direct promotions and proposed increases in spend, but even regarding their full base of spending. A little bit of that without employing zero-based budgeting, that zero-based mindset. Where are the places that we can free up capacity given the need to increase spend? But they really want to do it in a more sustainable way than they've done in the past. Often they've completed a major transformation or a big deal where they've driven to synergies and they've had to capture that opportunity, but it hasn't really set them up on a more sustained basis in terms of managing their portfolio. They want to tie it to actual choices around the workload, around the activities, around the efforts of the organization, not just around how hard they push on the financials and or the person. 
And then finally, more of our, especially larger pharma companies have moved to more decentralized decision-making and operating model. And they need this new model to work in a construct where they are empowering these business leaders versus mandating change from the center. So that's where value-based planning has come in. It is actually a much more sustainable way of working within large organization, empowering owners, but providing the insights necessary to make those trade-off decisions. Yeah, and just to build on what Grit was saying, resource allocation methodologies are not new. And when we think about some of the things that have existed, like zero-based budgeting, tactical planning, driver-based planning, a lot of different methodologies have been employed by different companies. I think the challenge that we often see, especially in larger, more complex pharma companies, is the lasting impact and the ease of implementation. When we think of value-based planning, there are a few differentiators or enhancements that we think of overall. One is really sort of tying the activity to cost and resourcing. So to what Rick was saying in terms of what really drives the cost and making the business leader think about where would I rather spend my dollars. The second piece is around looking at the totality of spend. So really thinking beyond what we would need incrementally year over year, how much are we spending from a tactical or an internal or a headcount perspective and tying that back to productivity. So this ties back to the point that I was making earlier. How are different ways that we can improve our spend base? And then finally, touching on the third point would be around empowering the business leaders with the right analytics and tools. So it's less about this being done to them, but really sort of enabling them to see how they can make better decisions. And I think those are some of the key differentiators we found to be more effective and create more of a lasting capability than some of the things that have existed per year. So it sounds like to me what this does is it brings more clarity and control to the organization. So I'm wondering if you can talk, Rick and Shaguna, a little bit about what that really means. What are the benefits of gaining that clarity and control in concrete terms? Yeah, I mean, the benefit definitely first, more qualitatively, is you're empowering your business leaders to be able to make some of those decisions versus what has happened more traditionally is every time there's a cost pressure, there is a target handed and it is being done to them. So the idea would be to really embed better analytics to enable better business judgment. But when you're making it more tangible and talking about value, we've been able to do this at a number of places and create almost about 15 to 20% more flexibility in the budgets for clients where they've already gone through a number of cost transformations, they've gone through deal synergies and integration. So even beyond that, there is some value that you can drive by linking activity to cost and sort of see where you might be able to do that flexibility. The risk is, obviously, sometimes if you don't do this, organizations are going to have some constant burnout. We say constant cost transformation or cutting costs out is sort of a crash diet. And so when you're not able to really enable your business leaders to do this in a more natural form, there's going to be some target fatigue. And it's not that you cannot get that 15, 20% through other transformations. It's just having a more empowered business leader. Very interesting. Very interesting. So what is a good way to get started on this process and start applying this methodology? Well, I'd say there are two predominant choices for a company. One is whether they want to take a do, then build approach. The other is whether they want to do a build, then apply approach. In the do, then build approach, we started with a fairly intense and broad pilot effort where the goal is really to work with the different business leaders in current and forecasted spend areas to identify significant improvement opportunities. 
either by reducing workload, as we've discussed, enhancing productivity through internal or external service models or other means, or reducing unit cost. One recent example yielded over a 15% improvement around operating productivity, enabling the company to grow double digit in a heavy needed growth mode without increasing their spend and to do so again in a way where the business leaders were truly bought in and delivered against that sort of a change. And then once it's been proven successful, the company is translating it into an ongoing capability such that they can continue this going forward, not only within the areas that were initially employed, but more broadly. If you take a build then apply approach, it actually starts with the capability building. And in essence, that's done through three main elements, one of which is to really identify the primary drivers of workload in each of the functional and business areas. Second is to identify and link the critical data, usually coming from several different sources that link together to demonstrate that workload and how it drives the financials, and therefore to understand the implications of changing in that workload, combined with the automated analytics to generate the key insights to bring back to the business leaders around the trade-off opportunities. And then finally, the third element is around the overall process and governance redesign. And most importantly within that is not just the overall budgeting process, but really incorporating these explicit catalyst sessions for business leaders where they're able to assess and evaluate the trade-offs across their spend options in order delivering the modified plan budget while still delivering against the top line successfully. I really like the metaphor of the crash diet versus something that you might think of as like a longer, more sustainable lifestyle change. So thank you so much, Rick and Shaguna, for walking us through this. Sounds like pharmaceutical and life sciences companies are going to be considering this over the next few years as the pressures continue. I don't see a change in that anytime soon. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.